Why can't God speak? There's no what? There's nothing outside of him. There's nothing outside of him, right? Speech is placing things that were internal to our psyche outside of ourselves. There is no outside of Hashem, therefore there is no speaking. That was the basic idea? Okay. How many classes did we spend on that? Two. So there's what to unpack there. Okay. We are on... Do you guys have page numbers in here? Yeah, yeah. We're on page 87 on the right column after the parentheses. So we're now going to explain why nonetheless we call his speech speech, even though he can't really speak. His blessed speech is called speech only by way of an anthropomorphic illustration. What is an anthropomorphic illustration? It's applying a human trait. I don't know why the translator can't just say by way of analogy. But whatever, okay. In the sense that in the case of man below whose speech reveals to his audience that was hidden and concealed in his thoughts, so too is it on high with the blessed Ein Sof, whose emanated life for, light and life force as emerges from him from concealment into revelation. Okay. To create worlds and sustain them is called speech. All right. So why is God's speech called speech? In what way is it similar to this thing that we call speech? That is... It reveals the concealed. It reveals the concealed. To whom? To the audience. To the audience. So, one second. So, when a human being speaks, it reveals the concealed to the audience. Okay? So the speech is revealing what's the thing that... What's the concealed? The thoughts. The thoughts. Very good. Right? Speech reveals what was concealed in thought to the audience. So, too, um, the light and life force that emerges from concealment into revelation is called speech. Simple enough? Okay. God's light and life force as it emerges from concealment to revelation is called speech because it reveals things to who? To who? The audience. The audience. What is the, what is the parallel to the audience when we're talking about Hashem's speech? Creation of the worlds, okay, and to sustain them. Does anyone have any questions they want to ask? You completely threw it off. That's okay, because you're dropping in the middle, so. Yeah, but I really want to ask about, but in the Chumash, doesn't it say that, like, that the people demanded that Hashem speak to them verbally like he does to Moshe? It and does. They, and then they all die because, like, their souls leave their bodies and then Hashem has to keep putting their souls back in? It doesn't say that in the It says it in the Medrash and I'm also not going to explain it. Okay. I know that's frustrating. You can ask me after class. Okay. I don't mind answering it after class, but oh, not okay. during class. Okay. I'm just struggling to comprehend what you're saying because I'm like thrown off from everything I've known for like 20 years. Okay. What's the problem in the text? So we remove the stakes so it's not so intense. I'll just say like this. I'm not going to continue teaching until someone comes up with a problem. Oh, I, I mean, in order to increase the stakes, I'm not going to continue teaching this text until someone comes up with a problem. Okay. So who is his audience? The created worlds. That's what it says, right? But the created worlds comes from speech. 
I mean, that would make a kind of sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay, that doesn't sound like a problem. Um, it talks about how, like, the life force is being revealed, but mm-hmm. talk, life force is not really revealed to us. Yeah, but it says it's revealed in the sense that it creates and sustains creation, so I guess that counts as revelation in this context, so, no. Right, the problem is life force emerges, emerges from Earth? No. I mean, it's not going to emerge from somewhere else. Why is Hashem's speech called speech? What do the text say? Because it reveals that what it's To whom? The audience. Good. That's good. We can create a world seem like an other. And, and we said there is no other. Like, that's why speech can't apply to God at the same time. Right. We just said that speech can't apply to God because there's no outside of God. We're saying it's only called speech because it reveals what was concealed to his audience. What? There can't be. There's two different ideas. Don't confuse them. One is that there was no audience. That's not a problem because we're understanding that unlike when a human being speaks, they're revealing things to an audience, right? God, the revelation, is what's creating the audience. Fine. That, that's an interesting discussion, but not for right now. Maybe we'll come to that later. The problem is more fundamental to the text. The text, we spent two days explaining how there is no such thing as God speaking because there's no such thing as outside of God. And we're saying, but it's only called speech because it's revealing to his audience. Now, presumably the reason why I need speech to reveal to my audience and thought doesn't work is because where's my audience? That's right. I don't need speech to reveal to my own self, right? I need speech to reveal to others who are beyond me. So what does it mean to reveal something to Reveal something to something that's part of you. No, no, that wouldn't be a problem. That would just be thought. That would just be thought, right. Okay. The issue is that he seems to be contradicting himself. We're saying it's not speech because speech means placing something beyond yourself. And it is speech because it reveals to the audience. Now, why do you need speech to reveal to your audience? Why can't you suffice with thought? Because thought... Right, because they're outside of you. Yeah. Okay, so... You see the problem? Yeah. You're nodding your head, which means you don't fully see the problem. I don't. I still... What I is the... Def- the separation that he's making between these two. He's like, this is the only thing similar. He's not... What's the thing that's similar? Are you trying to... The thing that's similar that it's revealing something. Okay. But I... I no, 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 no. That's not the similarity. If that were the similarity, we wouldn't have a problem. The similarity is not that it's revealing. Revealing is too general. What does they say in the analogy? The speech reveals to his audience that was hidden and concealed in his thoughts. Thoughts are also revealing, but thoughts are revealing internally, right? Speech is what reveals things externally. externally. So if you're saying it's like speech that it reveals to whom? Somebody else. Somebody else, the audience, right? then you need to have the somebody else, the, the beyond, the outside, the other. But the whole reason why we said it's not speech is because for Hashem there is no something as beyond himself. Yeah. Now is the problem clear? Right? It's not... If we just said it's called speech because it's a stand-in for revelation, like, fine, I mean, but for that, then it doesn't really explain why it's called speech, called thought. When we want to reveal things to ourselves internally, we use the faculty of thought. thought. We don't use the faculty of speech. 
Speech is specifically used to reveal that which is hidden in our thoughts to others. Okay. So I'm going to formalize the question. God does not have speech because there is nothing outside of him. God has speech because he reveals things to others. Okay, I want to change the word audience to others just to make it simpler. And our problem is, is that if there's nothing beyond him, there's nothing outside of him, then there are no others. What's the solution to the problem? Again, if the problem is God does not have speech because speech means to place things beyond yourself and there is no beyond or outside of God. But he does have speech because speech reveals what is hidden in your thoughts to others. And so to God's light and life force is revealed to others. So how's the, how's the, there's nothing outside of God, but he is revealing things to others. The others are not outside of him, right? That, you have to say that the others don't exist outside of God. No. No, no, so, so what we're going to have to do, if we don't want to just rush through this and pretend that we understand what we don't understand, is we have to realize that very often we need different categories of thought than what we're used to. The problem is because we treat that notion of other and the notion of outside of myself as intrinsically linked. Something is other in as much as it's outside of me. Something is not other in as much as it's somehow within me. So the only way this can make sense if we can have some notion of other that's internal. And if we can have some kind of notion that's internal, then maybe we can build on that and get some kind of understanding of what he's talking about. Okay. That's what it seems to be saying now. Maybe chapter 22 will say differently. Okay. If we want to have clear conceptions of things, we very often, what we need to do is we need to put them in contrast with their opposites, as the idea we've spoken about before. Okay, so we're gonna have two pairs, and we wanna see that these pairs are not necessarily linked. So there's internal versus external, what is within oneself versus what, what is outside of oneself, okay? And then there's a notion of yourself versus others. Now, it is true, the most obvious place to find others is? And the place where you find yourself is within yourself, right? That is true. But we want to decouple these, right? So we want to have in our minds that the notion of self versus other is not the same thing as inside self and inside of me and outside of me. Good? Okay. Now, What I want to do is I want to get us to that place, even if it's not going to be the most precise um, way of understanding it to make it fit with when we talk about Hashem, but at least that these things should start to decouple in our minds a little bit. Okay, so let's start with playing chess. It's a good, uh, good place to start. Okay, 
Why is it that most people have a very hard time playing chess? You're trying to predict the other person's moves. Yes? Okay, so you play chess, you have to learn how the rules, how the pieces move. That's not really that difficult. You have to learn strategy. That's more difficult, but not entirely difficult. You have to go into someone else's head, right? You have to predict their moves, okay? Um, I'm going to give you like a little mental um, trick. If you're playing chess, which side would you... I'm assuming everyone knows what a chessboard looks like. Which side do you sit on with a chessboard? You sit on your side, right? What would happen if you would pick yourself up and sit on the other side of the chessboard? You would see your perspective would change, right? Okay. So, if I just keep the game just just chess, like I don't really care who the other person is right now. What one thing that I could do is if I could learn to mentally flip the chessboard around so that I'm looking at it from the other side, right? Then I would able to play which side of the game? Both sides. And that's actually how good chess players play. Good chess players play are not playing. One side side they're playing. Both sides, right? That makes sense? Okay. So in that sense, they're getting out of themselves, yes? Are they really getting out of themselves? Or is this all happening where? Right. In other words, there's space for two sides, right? Now, here's the interesting thing, right? So there's the side of the white side and the black side, right? Now... They can play white, they can play back, they can play white and black in the same game, right? But which side do they want to win? Right. But then the trick is that even though you want whatever side there are to win, whether it's white or black, when you're playing the other side in your head, you, you still play that side to win. Right? So you have a notion of otherness that is taking place within yourself. That makes sense? Okay. Now, does that mean that's exactly what's happening over here? No, but this already shows us that the notion of other and the notion of outside myself are not really the same thing. Okay. Now let's go, now let's go um, one more step away from chess. Have you ever, ever had a conversation with another person before you had the conversation with the other person? Now, how does that happen? Right, so you, you, you have a model of them, right? And you're having this conversation with the model of them in your head, right? And how they're going to see you. And how they're going to see you, right? Okay. So again, there you have a sense of otherness in you. Yeah? Okay, now... All of these othernesses, they're only other from whose point of view? Yours. Yours, right? You are related, right? You have a conversation with someone else in your head, right? Or you're playing two sides of a chess game, right? You have a sense of otherness, right? Because you can switch, right? But the other, but, but it's entirely one-sided. Right? So broadly speaking, I would say that that's thought. That's not speech. You're not really relating to another, right? You're kind of creating... 
the sense of relating to another, right? The appearance of relating to another, right? To yourself. You're thinking about it as an other. So it's not really other. Okay. If God is going to relate to something as other, then it's going to be objective. It's going to be actually other. It's not going to just be other from his point of view. Why? What's different between God and everything else? God's subjectivity is objectivity. Right? God is the grounding of reality. So how God relates to things defines how they are. So if God relates to something as other, then it is actually other. That makes sense? Now, what's the consequence of actually being other, right? So, uh, so the first step I did was to talk about how we can like subjectively relate to things in our head as other, but it's not really other. The next step is to realize that with Hashem, because Hashem is the grounding of reality, if Hashem relates to something as other, then it's actually other. Okay, now what's the difference between something being other versus not being other? Like, what's the difference, like... Like, you're an, what's the difference between the person in your head that you're having conversation with versus the actual person? You know, predict, uh, they do, like, no. 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 Because that gets into issues of free will and knowledge. That's, you know. No, but that's your subjectivity, meaning, like, you cannot, you are constructing this model from your perspective. Yeah, but I, I, I realize what you're saying is usually true about people, but it has to do with two other factors that are not relevant here. One, people having free will, and us, th- and that we have limited knowledge. Take those factors out. But the other actually exists in your mind, right? So what does that mean, it's other, the other actually exists? It's not, it's not, it's not up to you. Other, other well, I want to be careful about that because I want to come back to God, right? That goes back to the question of independence and free will. The other in your head is like still part of you. It's just like a thought. And therefore, you're not changing anything. If I have having a conversation in my head with somebody, yeah, do they know about the conversation? They don't feel it. Right. In other words, the minute there's an other, I have to acknowledge, right? There, 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 there's how many there's how many perspectives there's two so this is what is very difficult to appreciate right? does Hashem have to go outside of himself to create an other no we, we have the notion of relating to things as other within ourselves right but our ability to relate to things as other right is just that we can relate to them that way within our own head but not really other right where Hashem's subjectivity like creates objective reality so if Hashem relates to something as other than himself what happens? It is other than himself. Well, if it is other than himself, and now Hashem wants something from that thing, does that thing know that Hashem wants the thing from that thing? Yeah. No. no. Because it's other. What does it mean to be other? Seven. No. But is it a new notion or is it a continuation of the Okay. I want to go back because there's several steps you have to build up. Number one, even in a human being, do we have the notion that within ourselves we can relate to yeah. things as other? Yeah. Okay, number two, when Hashem relates to something a certain way that makes it objectively the case? 
Okay, then number three. What is the difference between objectively someone being other than you versus them not being other than you? If they are other than you, then just because you see something doesn't necessarily mean they see it. Just because you know it doesn't necessarily mean they know it, right? So if you want them to see what you see, to know what you know, to feel what you feel, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to give it to them. What is the faculty that you do that with? Speech. Speech. Right? So speech is the way that you relate to the other as other because it is not a given be simply because something is revealed to me means it's revealed to them. Okay? So now... Let us think, for example, like a concrete example, okay? So if Hashem were to relate to me as other, okay, then I would actually be other, right? Would Hashem, have to, Hashem doesn't have to go outside of himself to find me, but I would be other. What would that mean? That would mean to me, I would have my own perspective. And if God knows something about me, is it follow that I know that thing about me? How would I come to know that thing about me? You would have to tell me. Okay? In other words, if a God is thinking about creations, those creations are very real, but they're only real to who? To God. If God is speaking to the creations, then those creations are very real to themselves as well. And to themselves with, right, with, 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 with a separate set of parameters than to God. So, for instance, if God knows that a person should be moral, does it follow that the person knows that they should be moral? No. The person created in thought is a silly question because there's, there's nothing to the person other than the way God relates to them. But if God, in speech, God's relating them as others, so now you have two perspectives, right? The perspective that God has that this is a person, which is something other than me, and that person should be moral. But that person may not know that they're supposed to be moral, and so God comes and tells them to be moral. Now, where is all of this happening? Within God. Within God. In other words, if God is, rela- if God is relating to, 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 to the person as other, who really experiences the otherness, the person or God? The person. The person experiences the otherness. God, God, right? When God, in other words, God is relating to the person as if the person is an other. So then the person experiences themselves as an other, which means unless God tells them something, they would not. But this is entirely happening within God. And it's only in that sense that it's like speech. It's not really like speech. Because really like speech means it has to leave me to enter you. There's no notion of leaving God to enter the person or leaving God to enter anything else. Okay. One second. So I'm going to use now the following example. It's a little bit silly, but it will, it will illustrate the point. Let us say that there is a fish. Okay. Now, does the fish know that there's supposed to be a fish? Well, that would depend. If the fish is, if the fish is in a state of, if, if God is relating to the fish as other, 
or not. If God is relating, let's take a step back. Let us assume God wants there to be a fish. Let us assume God is aware that he wants there to be a fish. But does the fish know that there's supposed to be a fish? Well, that would depend on whether the fish in question is a fish that God is relating to as other or not. If God is relating to that fish as not other, then the mere fact that God... The mere fact that God wants there to be a fish and God's aware that he wants there to be a fish means that there's going to be. But that's not the kind of fish that we're used to because that would be a fish which would be... It, would, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be... It wouldn't be... Like, what would distinct... Like, it would be... Right, like, that blows your mind. But what if the fish is, um, say, a fish that God relates to as something other than himself? Well, now there's a problem. It's very nice that God knows that there's supposed to be a fish. But does the fish know that there's supposed to be fish? And so in order for the fish to know that there's supposed to be fish, who's going to have to, what's going to have to happen? God is going to have to tell the fish to be a fish. And what happens if God doesn't tell the fish to be a fish? And what happens if God stops telling the fish to be a fish? So let's read the text again, shall we? From the beginning. His blessed speech is called speech only by way of an anthropomorphic illustration in the sense that as in the case of man below, whose speech reveals to his audience that which was hidden and concealed in his thoughts, so too it is on high with the blessed Ainsof, whose emitted light, light and life force, as it emerges from concealment to revelation to create and sustain them, create worlds and sustain them, is called speech. If God creates the worlds with thought, who's the only one knows, that knows that there's worlds? God. If God creates the world with speech, now who knows that there's worlds? The worlds know that there are worlds. But now, all this is taking place where? Within Hashem. There's no outside of Hashem. So if God created a whole world with thought, right? But it would be real only to? Yeah. But if he creates it with speech, now it's real. To others. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to ask if that makes sense because it's actually very mind-blowing. Okay? Um... I'm going to give you now an analogy. This is, this, is, this is the closest analogy that I can think of that gets at the feel of the matter, although it is not a perfect analogy, okay? Um, authors, like authors of novels, create characters. Okay. Now... Something happens if you're a very good author. And what happens if you're a very good author is the characters you create, what? Come to life. What does it mean they come to life? No, no, before that. Right, so you can't, like, you, if you're a really good novelist, right, and you write, you're writing a novel, right, and it, you had this plot planned out, right? And then halfway through you realize, like, yeah, but, but this character can't do that. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do that, right? They have, they, 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 they have become a fully fleshed out person in their own right. And now you are compelled to like take them seriously and treat them as if like they're a person with their own kind of internal consistency and motivation. And, and they don't, they don't, they're not going to play the role in your story that you want anymore. Right? So you are experiencing that person as a novelist as as someone else, right? You're relating to them as someone else, right? So far, so good? 
Okay. But here's the thing. Who's the only one that's experiencing that person as a person? The author. Now, what would happen if the, if, when the author relates to the person, as that, that character as someone else, the character would actually start to have their own subjective experiences? Then you would be like God. Then you would be like God. This is happening right now. We are those beings. We are those characters. But like, as well as even go this way, it can also go the other way. Like, this is like, although we can think like, okay, this character couldn't do that. Like, but also we can, like, he can't do it. Oh, he could. It's not not, like objective. Have you ever, have you, it's it's objective, but I said like, yeah, I mean, of course. Kind of restricting. It is restricting. Do you want to hear a good story? Do you want to hear a good story? Okay. I'm going to tell you... I'm going to t- there, there was a different story I was going to tell you, which I, I remind me to tell you the story about the Gemara. Mm-hmm. It is a story. There was a Hasidic Rebbe named... Rebbe Saras, if I remember correctly. There's a story with Rebbe Saras. And Rebbe Saras came to a, a wealthy, relatively wealthy Jew's house named Rebbe Moshe. And... Rebbe Moshe, he makes the house like all, you know, you know polished and nice because this big tzaddik is coming to, to, to stay with him and he gives the tzaddik the best room in the house and um, when he goes in to see the tzaddik, the Rebbe Saras, the Rebbe Saras tells him, um, I want you to go to the local parts, the local uh, non-Jewish landowner, nobleman, and I want you to tell him that um, Rebbe Saras is waiting for him in your house and is expecting him to come for an audience. And so he says, I, I, I can't do that. <laughs> like, I'm going to go tell, like, you know, there's, there's, you know this is the, the parts can do whatever he wants. Right? He's going to kill me. Like, I can't just go tell him. He says, this is what you have to do. And if you don't do it, you're going to regret it. And, but he can't bring himself to do it. And um, then his wife gets sick and his children get sick and calls the doctors. The doctor says they're dying. And she goes into Rebbe Saras and says, my children and my wife, they're dying. He says, I told you, like, <laughs> you have to go do this. And he says, okay, okay, okay. And he goes and he does it and they all get better. And he goes, and miraculously they let him in. And miraculously let him right into the, 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 uh, the, the, the parts. And he tells the parts and the parts says, really? He told me to come? And he just dashes out. He doesn't even get in his wagon. The wagon driver tries to, to, to get him to get him to the wagon. He runs all the way to Moshe's, Moshe's house. And he goes into private audience with Rebbe Saras. And then he leaves, gets in his wagon and goes home. And he can't for the life of him figure out why he did that. It's like, why did he run to meet this old Jew? And anyway, a few years go by. And, um, and Moshe had a non-Jewish um, servant who worked in the house. He was, like a young, he, was a young, he was like a young orphan that he took in and he worked in the house and um, he goes missing. And so shortly before Pesach, he's arrested for a blood libel. That the local priest has convinced everybody that um, Moshe killed him to make matzahs and he's going to stand on trial. And the idea being, of course, that if he's found guilty, Moshe's going to you know, die 
and um, then they're going to have a pogrom because that's how things worked back then. So they torture, they torture uh, Sir Moshe until he can't t- take anymore and he confesses. And now that they have the confession, it's just a matter of procedure. So they, they bring him to the court and they read the confession and the judge um, sentences him to death. But the procedure was that in order for the sentence to be carried out, the parts has to sign off on it. So they bring it to the parts, and the parts says, um, "That's fine. I, you know, I'll sign off, and that's my that's my duty." Um, however, I, I would want to actually go to the fair in Leipzig, Germany, to buy horses, and Moshe is an expert in horses, so I want to take him with me for a few days to go look at horses, and then I come back, and then I'll sign in, and then I'll put him to death. And like, okay, so they take him to Leipzig. And when they're in Leipzig at the fair, lo and behold, Moshe um, stumbles across this non-Jewish young man that was working for him. And the non-Jewish young man runs over to him and says, I'm so happy to see you. So what happened? He says, the, the local priest convinced me to, to, go, you know, to, to go away with him for a few days. And then he dropped me off here and I have no money. I have no way of getting back. And I've been lost here wandering around begging. And he says, okay, I'll, I'll, I have what to do. I'll figure this out. And he tells the, after they do their horse buying, horse trading, whatever it is, he tells the parts he found a very good wagon driver to take them back. And he has this uh, non-Jewish young man be the wagon driver. Um, and they bring him back. And the part says, I, you know, I, I'll tell you, when many years ago when I, when I came to your house with a holy man, she told me that if ever I'm supposed to sentence you to death, I should first take you to Leipzig to buy horses. So, I mean, I don't know whether this helps you. I mean, then I'm going to come back, I'll sign the death warrant and you're going to be put to death. And so she says, I think it'll work out. <laughs> and they bring him back and um, the young man appears in court and people know who he is. And he's, you can't be guilty of murder if the victim is still alive. Um, and then uh, he accuses the local priest and the, local pri- the judge decides to put the local priest to death um, because of his criminal actions. Okay, that's the story. Now, why is that a blousy story from a literary point of view? No, I mean, I could flesh that with. It's full of a major plot hole. What, the, what does the holy man do? What does the Lipsaras do? He tells, he summons, he summons the, the, the non-Jewish landowner who comes completely out of character to get a message about what to do several years in the future. Where was the relationship? Yeah, like, like, why should he come? Why should he listen? Why does Rabbi Saras, like, tell him this? It's, like, full of plot holes, right? Do you know why? You know what the point of the story is? You know what's the problem with a really good story? You forget there's an author. You get lost in the characters and the events. So from time to time, you know what Hashem does? He makes the characters in the story do things that makes no sense, that are completely inexplicable, completely out of character. And then what happens? What do you just feel like? You feel like there's something else going on here, right? There's something outside the normal thing, right? Like someone else is writing the Someone story. else is writing the story. Yeah. <laughs> They're not so interested <laughs> not in us. Back. Right? And, and this is actually how it's, how, you know, God, yeah, God can make, God can make, you know, water tr- 
stand like a rock, a God can make a cruel person suddenly suddenly act kindly, and a God can make a person who's knowledgeable lose their knowledge, and a person who's completely dumb all of a sudden knows something. He can do whatever he wants, right? But when he starts playing around with doing whatever he wants, what happens to the sense that the characters are like real in their own right? It goes away. Okay, yeah, so... That's kind of what miracles are. You're not the author of that story. Right. So, so when you said that, yeah, I mean, it doesn't really bind him. He could still do what he wants. You're absolutely right. He could still do what he wants. That's what we call like overt miracles. And when overt miracles, what happens? One of the things that occurs is you stop feeling like everything is so solid. You start feeling like something's being controlled by something totally beyond. And, you know, okay. But going back to creating the world, that doesn't really help if you want to make the world seem like a real place. If you want to make the world seem like a real place, things have to be coherent. Things have to have a tangibility to them. So if Hashem is going to relate to the fish as he wants there to be a fish, he wants the fish to be something other than himself, right? Then the fish can't simply rely on the fact that God knows it. God has to do something to kind of communicate with the fish. So the fish should know it. Otherwise, the fish isn't going to have that quality of being, being a fish, being other than Hashem, being... Yeah, Hashem, Hashem whispers into your psyche. You are a human being. You are a human that being. No, no, no. Miracles are when you do stuff that's not like a human being. Because then you really realize that. Because then you're, yeah, then you're, then. Because is it, isn't that what it says here? Being sensed and perceived, like the right. sense of it. Right, you, right. The fact that you sense yourself as a person, defined by what it is to be a person, and continue to live as a person, and can only do things as a person, is because God is, 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 is not just thinking about you as a person, because then only he would know that you're supposed to be a person. He actually he speaks to you so that you, you feel like you are a person. And he makes you remember that you're actually nothing by doing Yeah. Or to remind you. Like, just to remind you that you're not actually a human. You're not actually, yeah, the really, no, yeah, 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 okay. So here's the cool Gemara story. Many, many years ago in the men's program, we had a student who was a doctor by profession. And he was very smart. I'd say you have to be smart to be a doctor, but I'm not sure if that's really true anymore. <laughs> but he was very smart. Um, and so the way Gemara works is, for those people who don't know, is that Gemara is like play. You ever read a play? So you have a text and you have a bunch of rabbis discussing the text, um, but all you get is their dialogue. You don't like actually get any context. And there's a lot of back and forth and arguments and debates and whatever. Um, now, a lot of things in the Gemara are quite abstract. And so to make them less abstract, we, we try to make them concrete by, by fleshing things out. So. Um, the, the section that he was dealing with, that he was studying when he was in my notes, dealt with monetary law. And so very often we flesh things out in monetary law, we want to give people names. We don't just say like the lender and the borrower, especially if it can get a complicated case. So he was in a class with a rabbi and the rabbi would say, okay, so, so let's say Ruvain owns a cow and then Ruvain lends the cow to Shimon for a hundred days. And then Shimon leases the cow back to Ruvain for 90 of those days. It's already complicated already, right? Mm. right? Or whatever, stuff like that. So you have Ruvain's and Shimon, or like Ruvain borrows money from Shimon. And then Shimon sells his field to Levi. And then, sorry, sorry, Ruvain, Ruvain lends money to, to Shimon, and Shimon then sells his field to Levi. And now Ruvain wants his money back from Shimon, but Shimon doesn't have any money. Can he go take the field from Levi? 
So like this, you like you know, flesh things out. So he comes over to me. Actually, he calls me over. He had a question in the Gemara, and I helped him answer it. He wasn't in my class, but in the base measure when doing Bechavrusa. And then he asked me in kind of a hushed tone. He says, you know how, like, in this, whatever rabbi's class he is, you know how, like, he, like, to make the, like, the case that we're dealing with a little bit more concrete, to, like, say, like, there's Ruvain, and there's, like, Shimon, and there's Levi, and, like, flesh out, or, you know, say a field specifically, whatever it is, so it's more concrete and easier to grasp. I says, yeah. He said... Are the rabbis in the Gemara the same thing for God? He said, yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, God is thinking about the issue back and forth. And so he creates an avatar for this train of thought, an avatar for that train of thought. Except when God creates an avatar for a train of thought and treats them as an actual being, then those beings become self-aware and live lives. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what the Gemara is. I said, yeah, that, that's right. And I said, shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> so when, when, when the Gemara says, Rabbi so-and-so asks, it's really like God, God was considering this point of view, but God didn't just want to, like, but he wanted them that to be, right? And so the bottom line of Gemara is like, Hashem's decision. Hashem, you're thinking along with Hashem. What's the whole too? Well, the Chumash is less interesting um, because there's a lot of like Hashem is talking, but yes, I mean that's why in Kabbalah like every character in the Chumash ends up representing something. Okay, so but this is what he said, and this without getting into all of the the nitty gritty details, right? It's one thing for Hashem to think about others, but if he's thinking about others, and th- then they're not really others in the sense that they're only real to him. If he's going to really relate to them as others, then he's relating to them as ha- them having their own sense of, sense of self, their own perspective. In which case, the only way they're going to know anything, be aware of anything, or experience anything is if he speaks to them. But all of that is happening where? Internally. There's no other beings outside of God. God's just looking down plain. <laughs> so how do we know what's Hashem's, just his thoughts and versus? Versus? Are you aware of yourself? Yeah. Are you aware of things? So that, that we're not aware of our thoughts, so we can never know his thoughts. We can be aware of his thoughts the same way that you can be aware of my thoughts. You infer my thoughts from my speech. Of course, not all speech reflects thought the same way. So, like we can't say, "Oh, because I'm this way, Hashem wants that." Oh, for sure, you can say, "Because I'm this way, Hashem wants that." Sure, he wants it. Give me an example. What, what, what's bothering you so much? Let's say. A person like, wants to do something sinful. Yeah, of course. So Hashem wants him to do something sinful. Well, are we talking about the stage where he's done the sinful thing or he just wants to do the sinful thing? He just wants him. If sure, Hashem wants him to want to do the sinful thing. Why else would he want the sinful thing? One second. One second. If Hashem wants the person to want to do the sinful thing, why does Hashem want them to want to do the sinful thing? To not do it. That's right. If we move ahead in time to chapter 27, and um, I quote, For no person should feel depressed, nor should his heart become exceedingly troubled, even though he's engaged in all of his days in this conflict. For perhaps this was why he was created, and this is his service, to constantly subjugate evil. And it's concerning this that Job says, you have created wicked men. Not that they are created to be wicked, but that they shall have shared the temptations of the wicked in their thoughts. Um, 
and they shall eternally wage war to avert their minds from them. So who's giving you your evil thoughts? It's like a teacher. Just because a teacher asks you a question doesn't necessarily mean that the motivation is always. Sometimes a teacher is asking you a question because they want to see if you know the answer. Sometimes they're asking you a question because they want to trick you, to get you to think differently, so right? Crazy. Sorry. Okay. Oh, and by the way, if you've sinned, why did God, why, why, why does God want that? Setting aside the free will question. What, what, what service of God does having sinned in the past afford you? To Shuva, returning to God. So, yeah. I mean, this is, this, is, this is a hard thing. This is one of the reasons why this was controversial, because you can imagine like, someone shows up in the shtetl in Eastern Europe and says, God wants you to be tempted to sin. <laughs> that could be misinterpreted. Yeah, people think, like, oh, if he wants Shuva. Like, how do you know what he wants more? Like, if he wants Shuva, then maybe he wants to be sin today, because he's Shuva. Versus he doesn't want to sin. You want a good analogy? Do you want a good analogy? There was once a king. And the king had a beautiful rose garden. And one day it arose in the king's mind that he didn't want the rose garden anymore. He wanted an Olympic swimming pool where the rose garden was. The king had an enemy who hated the king. And that same day, the, king the king's enemy decided that in order to strike back at the king and make the king miserable, he was going to dig up the rose garden. And he goes to the rose garden, and he digs a giant hole where the rose garden was. What does the king do? He builds a pool and, and hangs the person. <laughs> these are deep, I mean, yeah, if you start taking these things seriously, like, oh, it, it requires you to reframe everything that you think we, we know, right? This notion, right? There's the notion that God is like somehow out there somewhere, and then there's this world, and, it's like, and sometimes God does things, and sometimes lets things just go. Like, that's obviously not the case. It's all happening within God, the reason we call it speaking, again, is just this simple point, that if it was be thought, then the world would be real only to. The fact that the world has an internal point of view, right? The fish knows that it's a fish. The person knows that they're a person. The person knows that there's a fish, right? Is because those things have been revealed to them. Apparently, which we're going to get to that. that. The chapter continues on that point. Right. Um, these emanations are indeed the ten fiats, or utterances which the world was created. Likewise, also the remainder of the Torah, the prophets, and the hagiographa. What is the hagiographa? Prophecies. Well, they think those would be the prophets, right? The writings. Yes. By, by, by logic, it must be the writings because our, 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 our Bible is split into Torah, Nevi'im, and Suvim. So, you yeah. know, okay. Which the prophets um, conceived in their prophetic vision. Right. In other words, God's speech reaches us in two ways in creation and in prophecy. What is the difference between the two? In what? God's speech reaches us in two ways, in creation and in prophecy, right? In other words, what do they have in common? 
Prophecy and creation are both God revealing something to others. So that means the other gets to experience it. Right? But one we feel our existence and one is just each other. No. I mean, you are not, you've never experienced prophecy. Okay. Let's go through this. There's thought. There's God's thought. There's God's speech. If God thinks, then things are only real to who? But if God speaks, then they become also real not only to him, but to? Others, right? The, the, right? So if God thinks of the fish, the fish is real to God. If God speaks to the fish, the fish is real to itself, to itself right? The fish gets to actually experience being a fish. Okay, what's the difference between God speaking in creation versus speaking in prophecy? There's two differences. Number one, number one, if God speaks when he create, when God speaks when he creates, there's no sense of being spoken to. Whereas in prophecy, there is a sense of being spoken to. In other words, like this: Are you are you experiencing yourself as a human being? Yeah. Are you experiencing something imbuing you with that sense of what it is to be a human being? No. Right. So that's God speaking in creation. God speaks in creation. Things here, but they don't realize. But they don't realize that they're being spoken to, right? So right now, I'm speaking to you. There's actually two elements. You're you're gaining knowledge, hopefully, and you're also a sense that someone is communicating that knowledge. When God speaks in creation, what happens? Things receive the knowledge, the quality of experience of what it is to be whatever they're supposed to be. But do they have any sense that it's coming from anywhere? No. Whereas if you experience prophecy, do you have a sense that you're being shown something by God? Yeah. Okay. That's number one. Okay. Number two, when you experience, when God speaks in creation, there is no context. When God speaks in prophecy, there is context. Okay. So I walk down the street and I see a rock. So let's say... Okay, so I know God wants there to be a rock there. Do I know why he wants the rock to be there? So I can't really infer from that what I'm supposed to do. Like, should I leave the rock there? God wants the rock there and, and to be left there, so I should like, not move the rock? Or does God put the rock there so I should pick it up and do something with it? Like, I have no idea, right? There's no context. Yeah? What happens if God speaks to you in the form of prophecy? Do you have some context of what God is trying to communicate and why? Yeah, in other words, like this. There's, to, in other words, if I'm gonna be very formal about this, when God speaks in creation, all you have is the result of the speech and, it is, and there's no normative quality. Normative means the notion of should and should not. So if God speaks and the result of his speech is that he's communicating to you that you should be tempted to sin. All that ends up resulting is that you experience the temptation to sin and you have no context of what you're supposed to do with that, right? Should I sin? Should I not sin? Am I supposed to ignore that, embrace it? I don't know. But if God were to speak in a mode of prophecy, A, you would have a sense that, you would have a sense of the, of the communication element, right? That someone is conveying this to you, two. Oh, that's one. And two, it would be normative. It would call upon you to do something. One second. Every prophetic experience that a prophet ever has, has 
this sense that they now need to do something. There's never just, wow, I experienced prophecy, and that's like an end in itself. It informs them how they should then approach something in life, in the world. Okay? But even though those are very radically different, they still share the quality that they are being experienced by someone other than, other than in our case, other than God, right? So again, if God thinks, who's the only one that experiences it? If God speaks, who experiences it? Others, right? Does God have to speak to someone outside of himself? No. No. He can relate to someone as others, and then they really are other, and then they really only experience things in as much as he communicates it with them. And within that, there's two modalities, creation and prophecy. But all of this is happening where? Because there's nothing outside of God. All right. Yes. Correct. That's what it says. That's right. Well, all of that stuff, all of that stuff is, is, is fleshed. First off, the oral Torah was given also. The, and all of those things are fleshing out the written Torah. And the written Torah is all prophecy. Yeah. yeah. What's prophecy about the stories in Tehran? Like, Avram and Facebook. How is that it was prophecy to Moshe? Yeah, first it was prophetic to Moshe. Moshe, Moshe got those things as prophecies. And, um, I mean, you do realize that the stories in the Chumash did not happen exactly the way they're written in the Chumash, right? Yeah. Because that would be weird. You're saying not even with all the explanations? No, no, I just mean like, like, let's, no, I mean it's like this, yeah. There was a man named Yitzchak, right? At age 37, his father brings him to the Akedah, to the binding, right, that whole thing. At age 40, he gets married. At age 60, he, sorry, he, he loves his wife, digs some wells. At age 60, he has kids, right? Um, what else do we know about him? He made a peace treaty with the Philistines. He dies at 80, at 180. Like, that doesn't sound like a very fleshed out life, Right? You think if the man lived 180 years, a lot more stuff would have happened, right? There probably would have been more conversations, right? So I'm not saying the events that happened didn't happen. What I'm saying is that what happens, we all know this, right? Whenever we, whenever, whenever we tell a story over, right? If you leave out certain parts, what does that do? Changes it changes the feel of the story, right? So if you take like someone like Yitzhak or Moshe or any of these people's life and you actually go through, it's not like a full biography, it takes little snippets of what happens and puts it together as a story. The best example of this is the Megillah. Okay? The Megillah, the Megillah is, a, is a span from the third year of Ahasuerus' rule to the 13th year of Ahasuerus' rule. At what point did it feel like there was a narrative arc if you were living through those events? Only at the end. Because only then, oh, like there was this party and oh, this happened. Oh, then has to be, right? But like, as the events are, right? One of the things that happens is that the, the notion that, that, that Hashem takes these specific events, right? And writes them in the Torah is because he's, he's trying to use that to reveal something to us. He doesn't write every single thing that happened to Avram, every single thing that happened to Yitzchak. And in fact, one second, and in fact, the fact that it rearranged, the fact that it's presented in a certain way, it gives us a reveal. For instance, if you read the story of Avram, 
you get the impression that the first time Hashem spoke to Avram was to tell him to leave his father's home, right? But that's not actually the first time he spoke to him. It's written out of order to give that impression because there's a certain feel that the story begins with God calling upon Avraham, not the other way around. I mean, there's a lot of... So, it, 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 once, so obviously the Torah, the Hashem, is, Hashem is... These events happen. I'm not saying they didn't happen. But when Hashem then tells Moshe what to write down, right, that's prophetic. In fact, there's some events that are written in the Chumash that Moshe could never have known about. There's a whole story about Bilam and Balak and... There were no Jews there. No one, no one heard those conversations other than God. Um, so, of course, it's all prophetic. And it's, prof- and, and it's meant to teach us how we're supposed to live. And there's many, many facets to that. You know, so, you know, if we see that, for instance, um, you know, somebody behaved in a certain way and the Torah presents that positively, what does that teach us? That's a positive way to behave, right? Make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, it's prophetic. Okay. So, I'm going to ask you this question. Are we existing in Hashem's imagination? Yeah. Not all yes and no. Yes, we think so, but no one is. Not, not only. Okay. So I'm gonna, the, the, reason why I'm, the, reason why, the reason why I ask this question is because I think it's very important that we are sensitive to the ideas that we're saying rather than getting caught up in the words. When I say imagination, one thing I could mean is it only exists within yourself. It doesn't exist outside of yourself. And in that case, do we exist in Hashem's imagination? Yeah, yeah we only exist in Hashem's imagination. In that sense, if that's what you mean by imagination. There's another sense of imagination, which is things that you experience, but they're not even real to you. Like, if I'm imagine, if I'm ima- like, like, if I, like, there's lots of things in my mouth. Like, you can imagine that I'm the king, and I can imagine that I can fly, right? But like, even in my own psyche, I don't really relate to that as being real. In that sense, are we existing in Hashem's imagination? No, because Hashem clearly is relating to us as real. Okay. But then sometimes I use the word imagination to mean things that exist in, my, in myself that I do relate to as real. Um, for instance, um, goals and memories and a vision and plans. These things, like, they only exist kind of in our own heads until we act upon them, or, or, right? But we relate to them as very real, right? They're not, we use the word intentionally, they're not imaginary, but they only exist kind of in our heads. So sometimes that's what we mean when we say imagination. And in that case... We are. On the other hand, when things all exist in our heads and only in our heads, they only exist to whom? And in that sense, we don't exist in Hashem's imagination because Hashem causes us to exist not just to Himself. And that shift from only to Himself also to ourselves is the shift from thought to speech. But where is the speech taking place? Within Him. And so you can't like really reduce this to are we existing in Hashem's imagination or not. It's like you have to figure out what you mean by imagination Good? All right. Okay. Yet. What does this word yet mean? Hmm. 
Right? There's some, going to be some tension between what we just read and what we're about to read. Okay. His so-called speech and thought are united with him in absolute union. As, for example, a person's speech and thought whilst they're in potential in his wisdom and intellect or in desire craving they're still in the heart, prior to rising the heart to the brain, where by con... Uh, by con- I don't even know how to say this word. Cogitation, they are formulated into so-called letters. Okay, we're going to stop there. There's a lot of words there. What's the, what's the kind of key thing that he's saying that's going to be intention? Are united. And that being united is seem going to be in tension with the fact that there's others. Actually, it goes even more than that. Before we get to others, is this just a problem for speech or is it even a problem for thought? Right? Let's go back. In other words, because remember we spoke about how thought and speech have this thing in common, they're both linguistic. Mm-hmm. And linguistic is something above and beyond the raw experiences of the soul. Mm-hmm. What is he saying here? If God's speech and thought are united with him. Then we even exist. Right. So now we're going to, and it's like this. <laughs> we're we're going to keep going. Here. We start off by saying God can't have speech because there's nothing outside of him. But it is speech in the sense that God is relating to us as others, right? Which means that we experience things, we experience our reality, not just God experiencing our reality, right? And that's through, that's through speech as opposed to thought, right? But speech and thought have something in common, which is they're both made of their their language, their letters. They have this kind of structure to them, right? And it's that distinct structure that allows them to bring things into being and to reveal and all And now what are we saying? That God's speech and thought are actually what? United with, and so, <laughs> okay. So, we don't really have enough time. Cogitation mean? Is that? Uh, becoming conceptually aware of things. Well, what he's now saying is that God doesn't really even have, forget God not really having speech, God doesn't even have thought because distinct thought let's go back to a person what does distinct thought require that there be a somewhat of a disconnect from the raw experience and the language of thought okay go back to remember the classes what's the difference in your desire for a cake or an awareness of how cake tastes good versus the actual word cake they're very different right so for the word cake to appear in your psyche there needs to be some kind of stepping away from the raw experience, right? The raw experience and desire you experience in your heart, right, emotionally. And then as you become kind of more self-aware of that desire, it turns into language in your mind, right? And what is, what is the Altar saying now? That implies some degree of separation between the words, the words, even the words of thought, and him himself, so it's not just like it's happening all within him. It, it, it's, in other, it's not just a technical matter. And this is what we're going to talk about tomorrow. It's not just a technical matter that, that it's all happening inside of him. There's no, even within him, this is what we're going to get to, even within him, there's no different spaces and levels. In other words, there's a big difference between our psyche and God's psyche. 
Our emotions do not exist in the same place in our psyche as our thoughts. Right? And that's why what has to happen, you have to be somewhat removed from the feelings. Right? The, as, the way Alter puts it is the feeling goes from the heart to the brain. Right? You become aware of them. There's a kind of a third person detachment from the experience. And it's at that point you have a thought in language. Oh, I am hungry. Oh, I would like chocolate cake. Oh, chocolate cake is really tasty or whatever the case might be. But if you don't have that kind of detached observation of yourself, the kind of self-observation, there's no, there's no space where the language develops. So if there's really no place outside of him in the most absolute, and there's not even like an internal outside space, then there's no, yeah, you never, you never make that shift from the raw feeling to the language. And if you're never of language, then speech is out of the question. Because speech is the thing that can, can reach the other. And it, the reason it can reach the other because it's linguistic. Again, I'm going to develop these, these uh, paste this a little bit wrong. I'm going to start this tomorrow. But, so. It, <laughs> this is the idea of, like, his thoughts are not like our thoughts. No, the thoughts are not like our, our, our thoughts was, was a more simple idea that his thoughts, no, this is saying that he, that he shouldn't even be able to think. Well, there should be a separation between and his thoughts. It's not just saying that speech and thought are one thing. It says that those things are united with him. So, it's like so they're not distinct. No. Mm-hmm. And, and they're not distinct th- from each other or from him. Right. Okay. So we're going to have a problem, right? Because, and, and this is what we're going to have. We're going to have a problem. Even if God were to speak, I'll, I'll say the problem. Right? Let's say God speaks. What's the message that we would receive then? Well, we receive not, we, the message we receive would be whatever's in his thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever's in his thoughts would literally be. So the only thing that would be revealed would be. Would that result in us? See a problem? <laughs> if the speech and thought are not in any way distinct from him, then... Right? Now, the, the whole reason why this works is because the, in the person is like your thoughts aren't the feelings. The thoughts aren't the ideas. The thoughts have a, a kind of a language to them. Right? And then that language can then be brought to others through speech. But if there is no, that, that distinction doesn't exist, then the only thing that God can, the only thing that can be revealed in his thought is his being. The only thing that can be revealed in his speech is his being. So the only thing that, the only thing that would ever be aware of is him being aware of his own being and like, that wouldn't result in us or prophecy for that matter, would it? So we're back to square one. We have no idea what's going on. Right. But also, it's contradicting the idea in 20 where the speech is like infinitely distant from the... Wait, the words are infinite distance from the speech? Yeah. Like we talked about, there's this, this infinite distance between your speech, thought... Correct. You, yeah, right. It's like right. Melding them all together. There's no right. So, you, so, so you actually have right. So you actually have two things. One, you have to understand. One, you have to understand how they can be unified and still be that distant. And then the other thing is, you then have to also explain how like creation works, because as of right now, even if God speaks, the only thing that would result from His speech would just be a propagation of Himself within Himself. Which I guess, I mean, I guess that does preserve his aloneness, though, if you think about it. If the only thing that happens is when God speaks is that God is God within himself, then I guess he does remain alone. But it takes away the point of speech. 
So would that say everything is, that is existing is really not outside of him? We're inside of him? Like As of right you know. now. Just remember how chapter 22 starts. Did, did the author actually go through this thought process like maybe it means this, actually don't care, and then go to the next part? No. He's just doing it for us. He did it for himself first. There are two faculties. There are two faculties. One faculty is Chachma, one faculty is Bina. What is the difference between Chachma and Bina? That's not the difference. That is a difference. The difference. Anyone know the difference between Chachma and Bina? The difference. You have to pick one difference in Chachma and Bina. Oh, Chachma does out of you, something outside of you, and then Bina is. I thought Venus called Chachma flushed out. No. They're opposites, actually. Great. Yeah, what's like self and Yeah, we said Chachma means space. That's right. Chachma is something that comes to you. And Bina? You is you are involved. When you, when, when, when the truth, when the truth becomes apparent to you, that's, when you are analyzing something, right, you are trying to make sense of it. You are trying to interrogate it. What's that? That's Bina. What, how do you hold on to something? Chachmar Bina. So, it's very nice that the, tr- the truth is revealed to him. He doesn't just want to reveal the, the truth to be revealed to him. He doesn't want to see the truth. What do you want to do? To hold on to it. And so that requires Bina. And he doesn't just want that for himself. He wants that for all of us. I would tell... Yeah, the only, the only difference between Hasidus... And Gemara is that Gemara is Hashem's thought process about the world, and Hasidus is Hashem's thought process about his relationship with the Jewish people. So, if you want to know what Hashem thinks about like stolen cows, if you want to know what Hashem thinks about what it means when you do a mitzvah when you sin. But yeah, which by the way means which is easier, Hasidus or Gemara? That's right. <laughs> and you know what else that means? I'm not supposed to say it. This is getting into trouble. If you really want to understand Chassidus, you need to understand. What do you mean you don't understand how he wrote it? Like, no, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand. Like, his ideas are so lofty now, and then, like, now they're, like, taught, and there's, like, a whole, like, movement that, like, go by them. But, like, he's, like, the first one, and the first people, and, like, I guess it says, or it exists, because could be grasped using human faculties. And that we could read this and understand this? And not to like, you were saying people before, like go to the Rebbe and have an experience? 
Well, no, 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 you still need to go to the Rebbe. I'll tell you a quick story. There was a chassid named Isaac Kummer. Isaac Kummer was the greatest chassid of all time. He was a chassid of the Alter Rebbe, the Mitzvah Rebbe, and the Tzemach Sedeh. First three Chabad Rebbe's. Um, he wrote a... He, he, he wrote, he wrote um, a note asking... This is a paraphrasing. He, he wrote a note asking the third Chabad Rebbe, so he was much older than the third Chabad Rebbe. He remembered the third Chabad Rebbe as a small child. And he wrote a note to the third Chabad Rebbe asking, um, uh, I don't remember exactly, but asking that he should really know what it means that God is alone. Like, he should really know it. There's a person who could explain Chassidus, knew and like, the, you know, you know um, I think at one point the Alter Rebbe said, you know, it's probably enough time, enough with the bait anything, you should probably start thinking about trying to become a tzaddik now. Like, like it was like on a totally different plane. So, um, and the Tzemach Tzedek kept refusing. At one point, the Tzemach Tzedek kept writing these notes and submitting them into the Tzemach Tzedek. And eventually the Tzemach Tzedek invited him in to his office with a small select group of chassidim and locked the door and said a chassidic discourse. And this is a quote. He said, and he shot an arrow through my heart. Um, and then he goes on to say that, that at that point, the truth that there's, that there's nothing on the God remains alone, like penetrated me. And I would have gone running out in the street, except there was a reason which I didn't, which he doesn't say. Um, so it's not like there is a level which it's not about explaining it. It's not about making sense of it. It's not about believing it. It's not about conviction in it. It's that not the truth of the idea reaches you, but the truth, which is the idea's representation of, reaches you. And you don't get that on your own. <laughs> to actually have that be your real lived experience that there is nothing other than God, that he remains alone. And that that is something that courses through you when you do a mitzvah, and it is something that you are in total denial of when you do the slightest sin. And you go into a state of literal non-being when you sin. Um, you know, it's one, thing to, it's one thing to believe that and have conviction, to understand it and convince yourself and live your life in accordance with it and feel deep emotions around that idea of the truth versus actually... Yeah, so... Uh,